Welcome to Tell Me More, a podcast series featuring distinguished visitors to Tufts University who share their ideas, discuss their work, and shed light on important topics of the day. In this episode, visual artist Angela Lorenz talks with Tufts University's Julie Flaherty about having re-envisioned a famous, but often misinterpreted, Roman mosaic, and then dedicating that artwork to celebrating 40 years of the federal law Title IX. The artist's exploration of this misinterpretation is on view at the university's Tisch Library. It's called Victorious Secret. That's victorious as in triumphant, not the lingerie company. In the course of this conversation, Lorenz offers insights into artistic experimentation and creating work that evokes both curiosity and amusement. She also relates an artistic tragedy involving some very realistic-looking graham crackers and discusses some highly relatable graffiti from ancient Rome. Let's listen in. Angela Lorenz, welcome to Tufts, and thank you for speaking with us today. Thank you for inviting me. So, in 1959, archaeologists excavated a 4th-century Roman mosaic from the floor of a palace in Sicily. It depicted a group of young women who seemed to be dancing or playing instruments. But what people who saw it talked about most was what the women were wearing. Not togas, but revealing two-piece outfits that looked like bikinis. The bikini girls, as they were dubbed, became famous. But in a who-knew-the-Romans-invented-the-bikini kind of way. It wasn't until recent years that an archaeologist realized what was really going on in that mosaic. The women were actually competing in elite athletic competitions. That tambourine she's holding, it's actually a discus. And those things that look like rattles, they're weights. So they were discovered in the 1950s. And um, the original archaeologist that discovered them did understand that They were athletes for the most part, but there were different hypotheses that were put forward. And um, certainly in the information, the kinds of guides that were published and available for people visiting the site, people really were promoting um, the idea of entertainers, musicians, dancers, um, or and even if they thought maybe they were athletes, they were perhaps performing in the forum or exercising, no one was addressing the fact that they are doing the pentathlon. And um, no research was had come to light or was actively being promoted in relationship to these in relation to these mosaics that um, for 500 years in the Roman world on three continents, there were international women's, athletic games, the pentathlon, which was based on the Greek Olympics. Fortuitously, I met this wonderful archaeologist, and much of my work depends on the research of academics, um, some of whom I meet by chance and some of whom I seek out, and I also just read a lot of books. Um, So I met Isabella Baldini-Lipolis, and We discussed these mosaics, and she said, oh, well, they're winning athletic competitions. I said, oh, well, how do you know? And she said, well, you know, these are the prizes, and these are the events that they're doing, et cetera. 
And she said, and I know this because of my my various research and digs in different parts of the world, including Syria. So I said, oh, my gosh, well, we have to publish this. I, I want to make this work of art and spread this knowledge. Said, oh, no. Okay. Well, first, I have to do an article for an academic journal. You can't just let this information out there um, without me doing it properly. And I said, okay. Well, it took it took years of my nudging for her to do the research um, so then I could communicate it to the general public. In your piece, You've, you've sort of recreated the original mosaic uh, in many ways very faithfully, but with some meaningful twists. Uh, could you describe what it looks like and how you made it different? Sure. Um, I made very careful choices in order to, A, represent the mosaics faithfully, but B, redirect your gaze to what the women are doing as opposed to just what they're wearing. So... The bikinis are great, and we have no other example in the Roman world of women wearing bikinis, but people are not noticing what they're doing. And so what I did was I laid sort of invisible frames over the mosaic. I kept it to scale, very accurate with the colors and the depictions of the garments and the women, but it... um, focuses on their athletic equipment and their hands, so specifically what they're doing. I also took away their heads so that you're not looking at their hairstyles and their expressions, but um, you're able to focus on their bodies. And I also think that their bodies are very nice because they're they're real bodies. They're muscular. Um, yeah, they're athletes. You finished this work in 2013, which was also the 40th anniversary of Title IX, um, which is a law that ensures students get equal opportunity in sports, um, among other things. So so how do you see this uh, work related to Title IX? These women have just been called bikini girls and um, we've been distracted by the fact that they're competing in athletics. Um, But I think it's important to recognize that 2,000 years ago, that prestigious families gained status by having their daughters compete in international athletic competitions. So, you know, academics debate things all the time in terms of the meaning and iconography. And we have some very good research here about what's going on, but we, no matter what, it cannot be denied that we have a record on three continents of the history of women's athletic competition. So I think that this is a very positive message. In terms of it addressing Title IX, um, it has recently been noted in newspapers that American in particular, women of the United States, their success in the Olympics has been directly attributed to Title IX in terms of since 1972, the funding that women's athletics has received has really allowed um, women athletes to flourish in the United States. So um, 
I think that there are it, it draws attention. It can draw attention to Title IX. I think in a in a celebratory fashion. So I I think it's important to celebrate the successes of um, this law and what it created in the United States. So around the mosaic, you've included some graffiti. Um, can you talk a little bit more about where you got that and why you included it? So graffiti highlights the misinterpretation of the mosaics. Um, a lot of the graffiti was, it's very clear that it was written by women. It's around the same time of the mosaics, even if it's from a different place. It's from Pompeii and Herculaneum, um, so Naples area. But it's uh, it's fascinating to read ancient graffiti, and in this case, it's talking about sleazy guys and boyfriends, um, so-and-so got me pregnant, shopping lists, washing lists, things from daily life. But they're highlighting sort of the wrong ideas about these mosaics and ideas about women and what women are normally doing. Um, so they're, they're interesting voices that are in addition to um, the mosaics themselves, and it's a it's a part of history that um, I think it sounds so contemporary. Um, disappointments in relationships, people taking advantage of young women with their names um, being named, and um, so it relates in different ways to the content of the work. Um, and brings it home. Do you want to read a couple of the the phrases that you you put on there? Um, sure, I, um, a few of them. We have Atimedis got me pregnant. We have Virgula to her darling Tertius, you're disgusting. Restitutus deceived many young girls. So these are. Um, Three of the ones that have to do with um, negative uh, treatment of of women and girls, um, yeah, that were written on the walls in seventy nine A.D. Um, when Vesuvius blew up. Mm -hmm. But it, as you said, it 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 can sound very contemporary. These are things that we might read on a bathroom wall or, or um, these days, right? Exactly. And one reason why I love history and the study of daily life and material culture in history is it, it shows how much um, all cultures have in common and, and really how um, messages are timeless. So one of the things I was noticing is you like to use wordplay a lot. Um, and one of my favorite examples uh, in a piece you combined faux graham crackers, again, doing the facsimiles of foods, and faux marshmallows. I believe they were made out of paper. And then the writings of Sir Thomas More um, to make a work of art. It has a very long title that's a bit of a tongue twister, but it, 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 it involves Moore's s'mores, which just makes me laugh so much. Um, and it also involves Moore's mores. Uh, so I love that your work is can be both serious and playful at the same time. Um, how do you how do you strike that balance, and why do you try and have both things in in one piece of art? Right. So 
Puns are um, actually mnemonic devices. They have, from the beginning of time, people have used them to remember things. My ultimate goal is to communicate ideas and to make um, concepts visual, to make history visual. But humor is important. We need we need distraction. We need to look on the bright side. But they do function in terms of helping us remember what we learn. You do a lot of historical research for so many of your works. Uh, what takes more time, the the research or the actual fabrication of, of what you visualize? Uh, it's always an ongoing process, and I have never thought about timing it. Uh, they're both laborious. Um, but I, I have this tactic, and I, I hope I have a long life because my tactic is to work on – I have about 50 projects. So at, at, a, at a time? Yes, wow. permanently. Um, <laughs> and so my research process I call dragnet. And what I do is I kind of trawl. Um, so I keep my mind open. And I meet people. I'll have a random conversation. I might something might spark a new project, but something might be um, the perfect piece of information to solve a puzzle, either in terms of the research or in terms of the fabrication. My favorite part is actually in the experimentation. So I love the research um, in which you never know what you're going to find, but then the experimentation um, process of a project is wonderful because you can try literally anything. You can just go, you know, wherever your mind goes, oh, hey, what if I cook spaghetti and I glue it down on a piece of cardboard? What's going to happen when it goes through the etching press? Is the spaghetti going to get destroyed? So then I make like not the final project. I make a sketch of a spaghetti face portrait in which I'm not concerned what it looks like. But, you know, you're, you have to it's like hacking your problem solving and um i think that is one of the it's only recently really being recognized in visual art that um the interdisciplinary um process of making art helps the brain helps problem solving um thinking outside of the box it's um there are many things that the mind goes through when you're trying to make an art project. So I can't really judge the length of things because, as I said, I do them all together because you'll often be blocked. Um, you, you won't have completely solved either the research or the fabrication um, or you simply have to do other things. And then in the meantime, then the perfect solution will fall into your hands. So it's kind of um, also an act of faith. I, I encourage people to, to go online and read more about your process because there are just some wonderful stories in there about um, 
um, how hard it can be to take round buttons and cut them into mosaic shaped tiles and um, how I believe once a, a cleaner accidentally threw out items from your studio. Which how did you find that? It, it's all there on your blog and um, how you rescued some of it from the trash and you I think I believe part of it was 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 smashed, but you went with that. You said, well, "No, this actually can still." Work. Yeah, you're actually going back to Sir Thomas More. A yeah. terrible tragedy happened while I was resident faculty mm -hmm. at the Skowhegan School of Painting and Sculpture in 2007. It's a backhanded compliment in that my graham crackers, which were made out of paper, looked so real that when the crew came along to clean out the faculty studios, um, they had been informed which faculty were staying on an extra week to make work, but somehow something happened. They went into my studio, it was very clean, and there was just a long line of wax paper and all of these perfect graham crackers and they assumed that they were real and they just thought someone left cookies behind and they just crumpled them all up and threw them into the trash. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and for speaking with us today, visual artist Angela Lorenz. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Tell Me More. Be sure to subscribe to listen to more episodes, and please take a minute to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also welcome your thoughts on the series. You can reach us at tellmemore at tufts.edu. That's T-U-F-T-S dot E-D-U. Tell Me More is produced by Katie McLeod Strollo, Stefan Hacker, and Dave Nusher. Web production and editing support provided by Momo Shinzawa, and Taylor McNeil. Production support provided by 5 to 9 Media. Special thanks to Dorothy Meany of Tisch Library. Our theme music is sourced from DeWolf Music. And my name is Patrick Collins. Until next time, be well. <laughs>